Bonsoir. We haven't separated yet. Hey, if, one, if it wasn't for us, Harper wouldn't be in power. I mean, come on. You want to play that game? We can. We can. You know, Max, if you want to get ugly about politics. <laughs> you want to get ugly about it. Oh, my. You know, we thank Max and, of course, the Stra uh, Strathmore congregation, and, uh, and justly so. Uh, it's a lot of work to put this together, but we've neglected to mention uh, the people here at uh, Great Lakes. Uh, Don Rose, of course, Val, Sharon in the office, and others. Uh, the, uh, the people who have been cooking. You haven't mentioned the cooks. Have you mentioned the cooks? Oh, good, good. Well, uh, we want to mention the cooks and uh, all the uh, folks here at uh, Great Lakes. Thank you very much for hosting. Don, thank you very much uh, for your cooperation. You know, we, 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 we kind of take it for granted, don't we? Ah, we'll do it at Great Lakes. They don't care, you know. <laughs> they have things to do here. They have things. They have school to run. They've got programs to take care of. So I'm sure it's not an imposition, but nevertheless, it's something that they have to factor in and they have to devote their resources, their people, so on and so forth. So we do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I also appreciate the brethren who selected the theme from Romans because it has helped us to renew core ideas and attitudes concerning our faith. All the speakers that, that uh, left the podium, you know, um, I said, and I sincerely said, thank you, that helped me. Um, Thank you, that helped me deal with this issue. This uh, Roger and I uh, went late into the night, uh, last night, talking about the things we heard here and what we could bring back to our congregation and to, to implement. And I hope that that experience has multiplied itself among all of those who have been here uh, this week. I think these things are things that are desperately needed if we are to reverse the downward trend of our growth. The last 30 years, we, it's kind of been an underlying theme, you know. Let's, let's, it's the last night, let's put it out there on the table. You know, I use the word trend because this is exactly the term that describes the historical development of the church. For example, there was a sharp upward trend of growth with the establishment of the first congregation in Jerusalem. And this was followed by a trend towards consolidation of members in that area. And with the killing of Stephen, the trend changed to an accelerated road of, uh, rate of evangelism as Christians escaping persecution spread the gospel of the good news throughout the region. And then there was more consolidation following this when churches outside of Jerusalem grew and took responsibility for evangelism to even further points away from the city where the apostles were located, to Antioch and to Ephesus and on to Rome and further from there. In all of this, the trends of growth and decline and renewal continued until even this day as we contemplate ways and means to stop one trend, which is of decline, and stimulate another trend, which is one of renewal and growth, in the church established by Christ so long ago. I believe that the Apostle Paul understood this idea as he wrote his letter to the Roman brethren. He had lived on both sides of the trend. 
he would have understood Trent. As an agitator complicit in the death of Stephen, sparking a growth trend leading to his own conversion. And then as a teacher and helper to Barnabas, consolidating the gains that the church had made in Antioch. And then as a missionary, opening up new areas of growth for the gospel among the Gentiles. Another trend. And then as a leader bearing the brunt of persecution and division within the church as congregations were rocked with scandalous behavior and infighting. And once again, as he is here writing to the Romans in, what, 57, 59 AD, poised to reach new horizons by going to Spain and beyond with the gospel of Christ. Another trend. He was anticipating another trend. And so Paul had seen and experienced the up and down trends in the church even at this very early stage in its development. But he could say with confidence that despite these cycles of growth and decline, peace and upheaval, glorious witness and shameful behavior, he was not ashamed of the gospel. He was not ashamed because the glory of the good news was not based on the relative trend that the church might be experiencing. He was not ashamed because the power of the message was not dependent on the strength of the messenger. He was not ashamed because the message of the gospel was not judged by human wisdom, but rather by the spirit of man in response to the spirit of God. Paul knew that despite the trend or the relative strength or knowledge of the church, he could be sure that the gospel itself had the necessary power to fulfill God's will in every circumstance. He was not ashamed. So Paul's declaration concerning the gospel is relevant to us today since we face similar issues. We are in a period of decline following a long period of consolidation of our churches in Canada. Read the history. Talk to Jeff Ellis. He is the history. No offense, my brother. You know I love you. The fact that we have to have a seminar about the need to evangelize rather than actually evangelizing is a confirmation of this fact. I mean, we're talking about what we ought to be doing. We want to change the trend, but we're not sure how. Paul's confession that he is not ashamed of the gospel may actually hold the key to understanding why we're on a downward trend and how we can once again find our way back to renewed growth and renewed strength. So we begin with the question that many have asked, why have we stopped growing? Why? I believe the answer is that unlike Paul, we are ashamed of the gospel. And this shame is manifested in several ways. First of all, we're ashamed of the message. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying we've denied Christ and who he is. This is not the essential message of the gospel. We're afraid, we're ashamed, we're averse to proclaiming the true message of the gospel that Paul summarizes in verse 17 
in the first chapter of Romans. Go there with me if you have your Bibles. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, what does he say? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Believe it or not, we're ashamed of that message because it casts too wide a net for souls. It's too similar to the message that others are proclaiming who are not within our heritage. It doesn't allow us to identify and quantify who's with us and who's with them. We've changed this message to the following. But the righteous man shall live by form. In other words, righteousness comes not only by faith, but the correct expression of that faith in a form that we will arbitrate. And so the nexus of salvation passed from faith in Christ to the correct form of our expression of that faith. We no longer examine the person's faith to determine their salvation. We began to examine the form of their expression of that faith in order to determine who is saved. You're saved. You're not saved. I don't like the way that you did things. You don't have this form correct, so you're not in, the, you're not in with us. In time, faith as the key to salvation gave way to form as the principal condition for salvation. Once this transition was complete, it was only a matter of time until the new demands for form-based distinctions would emerge. Stay with me here. For example, if form decides your salvation, then why should it not decide your fellowship as well? So we divide over music in worship and cups used in communion and how money is used and how evangelism should be done. Form, form, form. Once form, in other words, how we do things, becomes the basis for salvation and fellowship instead of faith, which is who we believe in, then the downward trend of decline and division is inevitable. It can't miss. Another thing we're ashamed of is we're ashamed of the power, the actual power of the gospel. We're, we're ashamed of that. You know, back then, 12 men armed with the gospel turned the world upside down in one generation. And we love to say that. We love to preach that. That'll preach. Today, however, we number in the thousands, and we have all manner of communication tools at our disposal, as well as money that they didn't have. My question is, what's our problem? Our problem is that we believe more in the power of the world and not enough in the power of the gospel. The world has molded our thinking more than we care to admit and our timid efforts at proclaiming Christ is the proof. Two centuries of researching everything from genetic makeup of human beings to global mapping and predictions of weather changes in a hundred years from now make us think that we can explain just about anything. 
We think we can break down every cause and effect, debunk every mystery, bring to a natural level everything that may be supernatural, including God himself. And for this reason, we have depended less on the power of the gospel because we can't quite explain it or reduce it to some formula or definition. But Solomon, in his wisdom, reminds us about our finite abilities to understand when he says, When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though wise men should say, I know, he cannot discover. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. If the wisest of men cannot know all the works of God under the sun, meaning here on earth, what makes us think we can fully understand the mysteries of heaven of which the gospel and its power come from? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19. The apostles succeeded because they obeyed the command to proclaim the gospel, not explain the gospel. We'll never turn things around until we begin to actually use the tools and resources that we do have to proclaim the message. Jesus, Son of God, died for the sins of all and offers all forgiveness by faith in Him. The Bible says there's power in that message. We don't have to analyze or explain how the power works. It is enough to proclaim the message. Now, we believe that the Bible also teaches many things. For example, that baptism is the believer's response and witness of faith. We believe and teach that repentance is necessary. We believe and teach the Bible says that the church is Christ's body and public worship has guidelines and the church is organized in a certain way and so on and so forth. But you see, these things and these teachings are not the message of the gospel and consequently, they have no power to regenerate the spirit. We cannot help but de decline and have little impact when what people know of us is that we don't use instruments or what they know of us is that we condemn others because they use the wrong forms. Or we used to be a growing church 50 years ago. The only people who care about that, us. Nobody else cares that we were the fastest growing church. That's historically correct. Nobody cares about that today. I mean, if you said last year, maybe that'd be relevant, you know, but 50 years ago, people are saying, well, what have you done in the last 50 years? Decline. This is the result of our tendency to rely and teach things that we can explain rather than simply proclaim. Other groups are growing by leaps and bounds, even though the way they're organized and the forms that they use may be, in our estimate, incorrect. They've tapped into the power of the gospel and they're not ashamed to use it. 
In the meantime, we sulk in the corner like the prodigal son's older brother and we think that we can increase our lot by judging the biblical accuracy of other believers and preaching a gospel of formalistic legalism that appeals to us, but not to those who are seeking the power of God in this world. We need to refocus our energies on communicating the message of the gospel to the lost and humbly accept the fact that people are converted by its innate power and not our power to reason or to win theological debates with other believers. We're good at that, but that has no regenerative power. One final thing. I don't want this to be a harangue. Five points would be a harangue. Three points... We're ashamed to suffer for the gospel. Now the first thought that comes to mind when the word suffering is mentioned is persecution. I suppose that some might be afraid or ashamed to suffer for the gospel or for the Lord, but history shows that most people rise to the occasion when persecuted for their faith. This is not the type of suffering that I'm talking about. One of the reasons for our decline, especially in North America, is that we are reluctant to suffer the loss of status, the loss of comfort, the loss of security for the sake of winning souls. That's why we have few churches in slum areas or places where the rejects of society dwell. We want to build our buildings in nice, safe, clean areas of town and populate our churches with healthy, functional families. I'm so happy to hear this brother's presentation tonight. Somebody's going out there to the poor people. That's why the majority of our budgets are invested in a place where we worship once or twice a week and a ministry staff to more or less manage those two weekly meetings. That's why we spend less time and money on food banks, shelters for the poor and homeless, resources for AIDS victims, battered women, runaway teens, drunks and dopers, and all the other rejects of society. Just how much of your money in your church budget goes to those things? We don't do it because we're ashamed. We're afraid. We're reviled at the possibility that these people will sit next to us in our buildings and we would have to step down from our current status to get our hands dirty with people of such a low degree. It's a lot easier to send money to Africa. At least my hands don't get dirty. At least those people don't have to sit next to me. We would never consider mortgaging our church buildings to finance an evangelism project, but we'll gladly relegate missions or evangelism to an afterthought in our budget in order to repave our parking lot or add a kitchen. I speak from experience, being on the receiving end of those letters. And we wonder why we don't grow. And we're puzzled because our churches are experiencing a downward trend. And we wonder why our youth, who are so eager, who are so idealistic, aren't here. They don't want to talk. They want to do. Without death, there is no gospel. 
The death of John the Baptist and the death of Jesus and the death of most of the apostles and the death of countless martyrs. What makes us think that we can have the privilege of both hearing and proclaiming the gospel without it costing us the death of something in our lives? At the very least, the demise of our comfort and some of our cash. You know, pointing out faults and weaknesses, you know, that's the easy part. That was the easy part of the lesson. We've got to find a way to restore the growth trend that characterized much of the early history of our movement as a restorationist churches. And that's a good thing. Don't, please don't get the idea. I'm saying that's a, that's a good thing. So let's go back to Paul's statement in Romans 1 to find not only the key for why we're not growing, maybe discover again the essentials for a healthy growing church. So let's go to verse 15. See what he says? Thus for my part I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. We want to grow? Let's be eager to preach. You know, I've done seminars on church organization and growth for various congregations in Canada and the United States. And when I analyze a congregation's various ministries, I invariably find that little or no money or time or effort is actually invested in proclaiming the good news to the community. Oh, there are programs, seminars, good works, potlucks being organized, but very little communication of the gospel itself to the 10, 12,000 people that live within a, a you know, one-mile radius of the church. Most churches use most of their resources in funding a meeting place where they can take communion, listen to a sermon once or twice a month. And evangelism is usually seen as getting somebody to come to this thing. Yeah, that's real evangelism. The guy, you finally get the guy to come to the Sunday service while the, preach, uh, while the preacher is talking about quitting smoking. Oh, yeah, sure. I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. But true evangelism is communicating the good news to the community, not the congregation. We know that. The goal is that every person in your neighborhood hears or reads or sees the essential message over and over and over again. You want to have your meeting? Here's the question to ask. How many times have we proclaimed the message to the 10,000 people around us? How many times have we done it this year? At least once? You know, we got to preach like Tim Hortons. Tim Hortons is not ashamed to say, Tim Hortons, always fresh. Right? On TV, on the radio, in billboards, newspapers, promotions. They say it over and over and over and over again until we know the message, we believe the message, we respond to the message, a double-double and two chocolate-glazed donuts, please. I'm converted. And why am I converted? Why do I go? It's always fresh. We have to be as eager to proclaim Christ as they are to proclaim fresh coffee and donuts if we want the church to grow, let me ask you a question. Why is it that Tim Hortons is growing faster than the church? Why is it that more people attend services at Tim Hortons than attend the church? 
If we're proclaiming the gospel repeatedly to the community around us using every communication tool available, then we are evangelizing and the church will grow. How do we know? The Bible promises. God promises. A second essential for a growing church, let's reach out to everybody. Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's greatest obstacle in reaching the lost was his own countrymen. The Jews wanted only the Jews to hear the gospel. Christian Jews believed that Christ was only for them. Paul's mission to the Gentiles broke down this barrier, but not without a lot of effort and teaching and personal suffering. We easily condemn that kind of thinking, but we're too often guilty of it ourselves. In Canada, we pride ourselves on being open to different cultures, and many of our congregation boast numerous language groups. I know Strathmore has. You know, we count in Verdun 17 different language groups, and we're less than 100 people. But our prejudice, you see, is not based on color or language since most of us come from somewhere else anyways. We're all immigrants, just the time factor. No, our prejudice is not based on color, it's based on class. We want people who share our educational and moral and economic background regardless of their color. You're black, great. Do you have a house? Been to school? We have trouble getting the gospel and our ministries past this barrier and have a hard time integrating people into our churches who don't fit our middle class profile. That's why we can count on one hand the number of ministry outreaches that seek those that are not only lost spiritually, but are also the lost souls of the world. Oh yeah, I, I'm, I'm guilty. Oh God, please bring in some lost soul who has a lot of money so we can build the wing. The lost souls of our society, the very poor, the new immigrants, those troubled by addictions, victims of abuse, abandonment, and just the crazy people. I know that's insensitive, not politically correct, but if you've preached for more than 20 years, you know what I'm talking about. The crazy people just show up out of nowhere. Yeah, them too. We are our, where are our shelters for battered women and children? Where are our soup kitchens? Where's our legal aid and free clinics and count? Where's that stuff? The gospel's for everyone, but we've tried to focus on saving those people who need the least amount of our help so we don't need to get our hands dirty. I'll give you the gospel. Here it is. It's nice and clean. It's tidy. I've got a bow on it. Just don't touch me. In the meantime, we smugly condemn the people who are rich in these kinds of good works because their doctrine doesn't measure up. Oh, yeah, sure, they may be out there, you know, feeding the poor and taking care of, you know, washing the feet of the AIDS victims. But, you know, they, you know, women clap in their assemblies. So, you know, it's not good. Can't be good. Brothers and sisters, we need to get past the barriers of our own fear and prejudice so we can truly see that the fields are white unto harvest, but they're not all white, as we are here mostly tonight. 
They may not be the fields we want to work in, but they're ready to be harvested, and if we don't go, believe me, God will send somebody else. He's not limited to just us. And so we need to be eager to preach. We need to preach to everybody. And finally, let's preach the gospel of faith, not the gospel of form. Verse 17, again I read it for emphasis, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith for too long. We've arbitrarily changed the boundary lines of the gospel. We've made the way a person is supposed to express his faith in Christ the deciding factor in the issue of salvation. In other words, we've uh, preached saved by form rather than saved by faith. It's not a dirty word to say you're saved by faith. We've emphasized that to be saved, the formula, the form, you know, you've got to do the five steps, hear the gospel, believe the gospel, confess Christ, repent sins, be immersed in water. We've repeated this formula so often that it has for all intent and purposes replaced the gospel message in our minds and in our teaching. And because it is a form, there's debate over its exact makeup. Let's face it, some want to add a sixth step. You know, remaining faithful until death. A seventh step. No divorced people. An eighth step. Where does it end? Some want to determine the degree of repentance. When have you really repented? Let's get a committee together. Some argue over the words of baptism. In the name of Jesus only? Or in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? How about I dunk you three times in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, and in the name of the Church of Christ? Maybe we'll cover all the bases. Some exclude from salvation those whose hand was sticking out by accident when they were immersed. Some want to immerse three times, and it goes on and on and on. And this is the result of a gospel that preaches that the way you respond to uh, the, uh, is the critical issue, is the, what's called the necessary threshold for salvation. Now the advantage of the saved by form approach is that it's easier to explain and present in a PowerPoint presentation. You know, you've got five fingers, five points, it's great. You never forget it. But it has no power to save, no power to regenerate, and it provides endless opportunity for debate and division. Paul, on the other hand, was not ashamed to preach to everyone a gospel of salvation by faith. The good news is that we are saved from a sure condemnation from sin and an everlasting death by a system of faith as opposed to a system of law, which includes this form base of salvation. That's the message. The righteous man shall live by faith. And after that verse 17, there's no brackets there that says, and see all the conditions of form below. The necessary threshold of our salvation is faith. Not perfect law keeping and in the same way, not perfect carrying out of all the forms that express that faith. Now, I, you know, I thought long and hard before I... I said, am I going to actually say this in public? And I said to Roger, keep the car running outside there for Thursday night. Some are thinking, well, does he mean that there's no confessing and no repenting and no baptism? Is that what he's saying? No. 
Of course these things remain. Why? Because they're of God. They're taught by Christ. They're the way we express our faith in Him. Confessing saves us. Why? Because it's our faith in Christ that we confess. Not the words. Repentance saves us. Not because, we've, not because we've acknowledged and abandoned one or all of our sins all at once. It saves us. Why? Because it's motivated by our faith. I believe, therefore I repent. As a matter of fact, if I really believe, I can't wait to repent. Repentance is a blessing in my life. Baptism now saves us, as Peter clearly says in 1 Peter 3, verse 21. Not because of the water, but because this act is done as an expression of faith in the risen Christ, and as a result, we receive a clear conscience. Let's put the forms associated with salvation in their biblical place. They are expressions of faith. They demonstrate our faith. They are offerings of faith. But the power to save remains in the faith, not in the forms. The forms serve our faith in our spiritual relationship with God. Confessing piety doesn't save us. Repenting by itself doesn't save us. Immersion baptism without faith doesn't save us, as Paul demonstrates in Acts chapter 19. The twelve were rebaptized not because they had the form wrong, they were rebaptized because they had the faith wrong. Proclaiming that if you get the five steps right is not the good news, and our decline while preaching this type of message is evidence that there is little power in our preaching. If we want to grow, If we want to bring joy to the lost, we need to preach the complete gospel in its proper order. God offers eternal life to those who believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for sin and rose from the dead. That is good news. This is what Peter preached at Pentecost, isn't it? And when the crowd responded, he told them how they could express their faith. What do we do? How do we... Repent, be baptized. That message was good enough and powerful enough to bring 3,000 souls into the church on that glorious day, and it should be good enough and powerful enough today. And those of you who are going like this, I accept that that's your amen. So in closing, no long closing, no poem, no song. Just let me say that if we do these things, we should be ready for the consequences, not just the results. You see, successful gospel preaching may bring persecution and opposition and even suffering, as well as the increased numbers that we so desire. But we who are obligated, we who are eager, must not be ashamed, even of these things. God bless you. Thank you very much for your attention.